On a cold evening in January of 1999, Tika Lewis's parents took their two-year-old for a night of bowling. Her mother left Tika playing on an arcade game for just a moment while she took her turn bowling. When she looked back, her daughter had vanished. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Doing pretty well. How are you today? I am doing well. And for this episode, we have our friend and co-worker Jennifer Amell join us. And we're speaking about the disappearance of Tika Lewis from Tacoma, Washington on January 23rd, 1999. Yeah, there's no two ways about it. This one is a really sad story, very tragic. She was only two and a half years old when she went missing. And we we said it during the interview, it's tough to read statistics of anybody who's missing, uh, male, female, young, old. But when you describe somebody as being just three foot tall and 35 pounds at the time of their disappearance, it it, it hits home in a way that the others don't because uh, just considering how helpless this incredibly young girl was. We also break down a lot of the other factors that went into this disappearance, this potential abduction, the location, the amount of people around there, the incredible immediate investigation, both from law enforcement and by the public, and still no answers. So really, this one could use the help of the public. This one could really use the help of uh, the public raising the awareness and making sure that it doesn't disappear. Absolutely. And this research was brought to us by Private Investigations for the Missing. You can get more information about that nonprofit that we are on the board of at investigationsforthemissing.org. And this research was done by volunteer Kathleen Studer. So thanks a lot, Kathleen. This is great work. And you're right, Lance, this one could really use the help of the public. So the Tacoma Police Department is the investigating agency. Their phone number is 253-798-4721. And the FBI is also still involved in this. So if you have any information, you could also reach out to your local FBI office. And as far as we know, the detective assigned to this from the Tacoma Police Department is Larry Lindbergh. So if you're contacting the Tacoma Police Department. Be sure to reference Larry Lindbergh. Okay, part two will be coming next week. Thanks a lot for listening. Please follow us on social media at Missing CSM. And while you're listening to the shows, feel free to swing on over to your favorite podcast listening service and throw down a five star review. Throw us one. Give us one. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. 
Welcome back to the podcast, Jennifer Amell. How are you today, Jen? I'm doing very well, Tim. Thank you. It's really good to have you on because uh, I feel like I need you on this episode, uh, not like I can get through it with just Tim, but having you on this episode as we talk about the disappearance of uh, a very, very, very young individual, Tika Lewis. Uh, she disappeared in 1999, and she was two and a half years old, and just the first few details of of her as a person just the description of her is heartbreaking and then you get into the actual disappearance um i am grateful to have somebody on who we can sort of have an emotional uh, uh round table with uh yeah this this case is really heartbreaking i mean every missing persons case that we cover like touches us in in some kind of way but it's particularly hard when it is such a young person Absolutely. Um, you know, wh what's the alternative, right? Do you, you, you read it straight? Do you um, wear that emotion while you read it? It's tough. We were just talking about just getting through the details just to get to the story. And it's a lot easier to focus on the investigation in a case like this. Um, Jennifer, this research was done by a new researcher. Can you tell us uh, who that was? Yes, we have a fantastic new researcher who's volunteering her time for private investigations for the missing. Her name is Kathleen Studer. Well, thanks a lot, Kathleen, for putting this together. It couldn't have been easy, but it's so thorough. Uh, I, I think we had talked about this possibly being a two-parter just due to how thorough this is. Thanks a lot for volunteering, Kathleen. We really appreciate it. You can check out more information about private investigations for the missing at investigationsforthemissing.org. And to run down some of the statistics on Tika Lewis, she's been missing since January 23rd of 1999, missing from the New Frontier Lanes, that's in Tacoma, Washington, specifically at a location 4702 Center Street. The bowling alley does not exist any longer, but that was the address where she was last known to be seen. She was born on July 4th, 1996, a biracial female that's African-American, Caucasian, and Chippewa, black hair, brown eyes, again, two and a half years old. She was three feet tall, 35 pounds, clothing at the time of missing, a green Tweety Bird sweatshirt, white sweatpants, black and white Air Jordan sneakers, and a clear purse with a fish design containing quarters and starburst. Jeez, that's, um, that's really heartbreaking just to read what she was carrying around in her little purse. That's such mm -hmm. a two and a half year old thing to have. Quarters and, and you can starburst. you can see that purse right in your head like that the the clear mm -hmm. plastic yeah it's the Tweety Bird um mm -hmm. sweatshirt that gets me um that just that detail it's just so innocent mm -hmm. and uh, distinguishing characteristic she had some skin discoloration on her face and buttocks eczema pierced ears and may require medical attention for asthma she's classified as lost injured or missing. Tika is the fourth of five children born to Teresa English. Tika's father, um, his name is Robert Lewis, who is also the father to Tika's younger sister by about one and a half years, named Tamika. Teresa was 27 years old at the time of Tika's disappearance, and Robert Lewis was actually incarcerated at the time of Tika's disappearance at McNeil Island Correctional Center. He was serving a four-year sentence and is not considered a suspect in her disappearance. And because... Tika was so young at the time of her disappearance. Obviously, 
age progression images, uh, renderings uh, can be found out there. They actually did a pretty good job, which I believe was done by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. There's age progression of her at 15 and at 17, which physically, characteristically, looks looks pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it always amazes me how age progression is done. Sometimes you see really bad ones. These do appear to be good ones. Um, obviously, we don't know what Tika looks like now, but seems like it could be accurate. And these age progression images that we're speaking of, you can find on our social media platforms, Missing CSM, if you want to check them out and just uh, kind of put a visual to what we're talking about here. Okay, and the New Frontier Lanes bowling alley was located right off Highway 16 and not far from I-5 in the western part of the city of Tacoma. Formerly called Midway Bowl, it was renamed and reopened in 1961 as New Frontier Lanes, a 32-lane bowling alley, and the main entrance was in the middle of the building. It had an area that was open behind the bowling lanes with a counter for people who were watching the bowlers to sit at, which sounds kind of cool. Arcade games around the wall in the open area as well as an arcade room. But it closed in July of 1999 and was demolished by a development company that built a Home Depot and Jack in the Box in that location. Now, it's important to know the geography of the area and also the layout of the building, as you described, Tim, because as you'll see later on, as we talk about the circumstances of that evening and her disappearance, where the lanes were that the family was bowling at, where she was in that arcade and how close she was to the side door, how close she was to access outside, whether she did it herself or somebody grabbed her and brought her outside, how that lays out in the parking lot. Also, how close it was to uh, Highway 16. It is literally right off the highway. So um, very important to know the geography and the layout. Yeah, not to mention that I-5 intersected right at that junction, too. You could easily get on the interstate from there, too. And that's um, uh, kind of a, a quick getaway. We see that a lot in various cases, like um, abductions or, or, or murders taking place, like right outside of an interstate highway. Just ease of access, I think. So Tika and almost a dozen of her family members arrived at New Frontier at about 8.30 p.m. on Saturday night, January 23rd, 1999. Her mom, her babysitter, her mom, her baby sister, and her mom's boyfriend and uncles were some of who were there. Sounds like a big party. Sounds like a lot of fun. Well, it was league night, and there was an estimated 150 people there who were just bowling. There was also about the same amount of people who were watching those individuals bowl. Uh, the lo- the parking lot was completely full, and with the sounds of the of the bowling happening and and people gathering, you can imagine just how noisy and sort of chaotic the whole thing was. Um, The temperature that day was around 38 degrees Fahrenheit, and the area had just received over like half an inch of rain that day. Um, Keep in mind, this is Washington, so it's not out of the ordinary for a lot of rainfall. Tika did not have a coat on at the time of her disappearance either. And Tika's family and friends were bowling on lanes 7 and 8, which you know can be kind of important because as we discussed, one of the entrances was right in the middle, um, so they were somewhat in the middle of a 32-lane bowling alley. I think the layout of the bowling alley, um, I think they had lanes on both sides of the building with like kind of the food arcade area in the middle of it. And on the side that, that Tika's family was bowling on, they were in the middle lanes, seven and eight. And at the end of that lane was a uh, a cluster of arcade games, and that's where Tika was sitting and occupying herself as her family was taking turns on the lanes. 
And at the exact time of the incident, Tika was in that arcade area along the back wall, sitting in the seat of a car racing game called Cruisin' World. And she was too small to play the game, and her feet wouldn't even reach the pedals. And the game sat about six feet from a side exit door that opened up to the east side of the building. And here's where the sightings break down. Around 10.15, Teresa was standing near Tika, but it was her turn to bowl. She asked her boyfriend to take over watching Tika. She said later that she told Tika she would be right back. It then became her boyfriend's turn to bowl, so Tika's uncle took over watching her. Tika's uncle turned to watch Teresa's boyfriend's roll, turned back to Tika, and discovered that she was gone. So this happened in the course of just a few minutes, from 10.15 to, I guess, maybe 10.20, a little past 10.20-ish. Yeah, it's an amazingly narrow time frame for something to have happened. I mean, you you hate to think that somebody was was watching Tika's family looking for an opportunity to approach um, the small child, or it could be that Tika just sort of wandered off from the arcade game um, within those minutes. But it's it's so tragic that like in, given this very narrow window of time, when uh, her whole family just turned around to watch bowling, that Tika disappeared. And in in the middle of a bunch of people as well. If if someone was abducted, if a child was abducted, it had to have happened so fast that all of the bystanders, the onlookers, the bowlers, and including the the three people that were assigned to watch Tika never saw. You know, it's whoever was whoever abducted her, or if she decided to walk away, she took the prime opportunity to do so. And it seems to me like they did as as much due diligence as as they could have at least from their accounts, to watch Tika. That, you know, they were there to bowl, their turns came up, and they made sure that somebody was watching the girl. Yeah, whatever happened must have happened quick. And uh, it is every parent's worst nightmare. And uh, Tika's family spent 10 or so minutes frantically looking for her around the bowling alley, searching behind the arcade games and the bathrooms and anywhere she might have gone, including out into the parking lot through that side exit door and yelling Tika's name. And Teresa said that Tika was a mama's girl who didn't like the dark and would have come to her mother's calling if she heard her. And she also states that she felt the side door was too heavy for Tika to have pushed open by herself. I mean, it's it's a great point. It's a great bit of uh, speculating or theorizing by Teresa. I can't get into the mind of a two and a half year old little girl, but being in an area where your family is and there's fun happening and you're at an arcade game and even though you're too small to play the game, you're still there. It's like bright lights. There's a lot of activity. It makes no sense why she would force a door open. And even though it's unlocked, like that's a heavy door. Like there, it's a side door probably with one of those crash bars. It would take a bit of an effort, I would imagine. Why would she even decide to leave that environment to go out into 20 degree weather with no jacket? Yeah, I think the circumstances definitely point to somebody maybe luring her out. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. And uh, an off-duty Tacoma police officer was working security duty that night and was notified that Tika was missing about 10 minutes after um, she went missing. And the bowling alley made a loudspeaker announcement right after the officer was notified, and they asked all of the people in the bowling alley to stop what they were doing and help search for Tika. It's pretty impressive. I mean, we always say when we do these episodes, like, why didn't this happen? Where was this person? Uh, how did they, why did they wait so long? And, and, but this is not the case. This is the entire bowling alley shutting down and saying, stop what you're doing. We need to find this child. That's 
as much as they could do 10 to 15 minutes after a child could have just possibly wandered off. I, and I think that that's reassuring that they shut it down and said, stop what you're doing and look for this child because they could have just written it off and said she wandered off. You know, she's probably in another arcade game or something. Yeah, I think like on the flip side of that, it probably becomes very difficult because there were so many people there. I mean, there's upwards of 300 people in this bowling alley that night. So if you're a uh, law enforcement and you're trying to like keep people inside, um, like don't leave until you're questioned. Um, I think that would be quite difficult with that many people. Yeah. And Teresa described a woman at the bowling alley that night who asked to hold Teresa's relative's baby. And Teresa believes this woman could be a suspect. Um, this part kind of reminds me of the disappearance of Raymond Green. Um, we had his mom, Donna, on, um, and that is something similar that happened in that case. Um, Donna had met a woman at the hospital and took took her baby home, and this you know, this woman who she thought was a friend was in her house while Donna went to take a shower. And when she got out of the shower, uh, this woman and Raymond were gone. And as a parent, I'm not, I'm asking, as a parent, is it an instant red flag when a stranger asks to hold your baby? Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think so. I mean, unless you're at like a family reunion or something like that, a stranger? Yes. Yes. hundred percent. In a bowling alley. There's nothing about that where you'd say like, that's just an innocent, you know, child loving adult. No, I mean, I, I, I don't think so, in my opinion. Yeah, I agreed. I think um, perhaps because it's a female, like I think maybe you'd feel a little bit more uneasy if it were a male who was like, can I come over and hold your baby? But your guard is down a bit when it's when it's a woman asking because you have this like sense of maternal instinct and that like a woman could never hurt a child but i mean that's not not always the case and i guess i kind of set myself up when i had mentioned how diligent the establishment was in trying to find tika right away as we'll discover going deeper into this conversation they might have had another reason to locate a young child who was missing in their facility that they might not want an event happening that had previously happened a couple of times, which we'll get to. Uh, I just want to put that out there that maybe maybe it wasn't so much let's find this child for her safety, for the parents' safety. Maybe it was like, this has happened before. Well, you're right that the establishment you know, acted pretty quick. So maybe it was something that they were, uh, I don't want to say used to have happening, but you know, it wasn't the most unusual thing. They, uh, they marked off the parking lot within 15 minutes of her going missing, and the search began right then and there. I wonder if that's because they had an officer there already who was experienced in, in what, in the protocol, like what should happen right after a child goes missing. I wonder if that officer wasn't there, if they would have the same response. That is a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, it struck me as good luck that he was there, that that officer or he or she, I suppose. Um, but also that he was a he or she was there on security detail. So maybe this was the establishment sort of um, thinking ahead a little bit. Well, there was an immediate search for the next fifteen hours. Police, thirty-three search and rescue, which includes eight canines, a helicopter with infrared camera. They all searched a one point five mile radius surrounding the bowling alley. So I'm guessing that they went like onto the highway and a little bit beyond the highway. 
It's not immediately reported to the news, but two dogs working were led to an overgrown area across the street right after she went missing. They did not locate anything of evidentiary value at the time, but two days later they went back to that same area that the two dogs had alerted them to originally and located some men's clothing that was rolled up into a ball. I'm wondering, like, why the dogs would have alerted to that. Like, would Tika's scent be on his clothing? I guess it depends what kind of dogs, too. Yeah, I'm wondering what would make the dogs alert to that rolled-up ball of men's clothing. Um, They obviously wouldn't have the scent of any strange man that happened upon the area. So I'm wondering if the scent of Tika was actually on that clothing. I think it depends what kind of dogs were used. If they were search dogs and they gave a search dog a sniff of uh, a piece of clothing that Tika wore, um, then... That would be the reason, I think, if it's a cadaver dog, then that's worse news. Um, but I would think it was uh, this was a, probably search dogs at this point. Right. And if they introduced search dogs to all of this, they, I guess it goes without saying, they provided articles of Tika's clothing so that the dogs had a scent of the person that they were searching for. But bear in mind that they didn't locate anything during that initial search when the dogs were led to that area. So maybe Tika had been right there for a brief period of time, maybe a couple hours, and left her scent at that area, at that location, before being taken away. I don't know if we can equate the scent being on those clothes. They went back without the dogs to that area for a further search and found the clothes the second time. Right. So you're saying like the clothes might be a red herring. They just happen to be in the area where Tika was. Could be a red herring, or maybe they didn't see them the first time around, but I don't think the dogs would have been searching arbitrarily. I think if they were alerted to a location, it wasn't a false alarm, and her her scent at one point had been there. Yeah, let's give you a little bit more detail about what this clothing consists of. It was a Boatworks navy blue wool coat. Um, this was a size large. There were initials on the label, either an IS or a JS, which, thanks to the help of a tipster, was later determined to be the codes used by a local thrift store by the name of Value Village. There was also Lee Dungarees off-white jeans. They were a size 34 waist and a 32 length. There was a Columbia button-down flannel shirt. Um, There's no size indicated, but it was blue and green over white with yellow plaid. It was determined that the clothing had not been there that long because it had no mold, which, as you might remember, we're in the Pacific Northwest. It's very damp, um, so I think that would quickly get relatively moldy if it had been there for long. And forensics apparently combed the clothing for fibers and evidence, but it was never reported, publicly at least, if there were any findings. I wonder how long the police had a presence in that area in those hours. In, in a day or two after, you know, I, I'm just I'm saying like if those clothes weren't there during the first search, who had the opportunity to put them there without the police noticing if the police were still searching or if there were still even locals um, volunteers searching? Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I, I wonder how someone could could slip into the area if it was kind of crawling with search and rescue personnel. It's also impressive that four FBI agents On Sunday, the 24th, the day after the disappearance, four FBI agents were assigned to the case along with the Tacoma Police Department. 
Yeah, and they started interviewing and backgrounding patrons and employees of the bowling alley as well as asking anyone who took photos to please turn them in. And they checked phone records of the payphones at the alley for clues, and they checked with local sex offenders. It was determined, unfortunately, that the surveillance system was not working the night of January 23rd, so there was no video to help with the investigation, which is completely uh, frustrating. And I, I just, I hate hearing that kind of thing. I feel like that happens all the time in these cases that we cover. Like, oh, the battery wasn't working or the thing was down or something like that. It's just frustrating. Please check your tapes, everybody. Any theories about why the FBI was so quickly involved in this? I think uh, they jump on any case where it, it's this young of a missing person. Yeah kidnapping um of a child and also the area um it's it's not the most uncommon thing in that area yeah because we know like with other missing persons of adults that go missing like there's always the question there if they could have willingly left their life behind but with a child you know that's definitely not a possibility yeah if she walked away on her own she'd be found somewhere and that's just the reality we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Antika's family also brought a uh, psychic into the investigation, the first psychic into the investigation, uh, very quickly on that Sunday, January 24th. And um, so there's several psychics associated with the case. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if this speaks to the belief system of the Lewis family. Um but I think it definitely speaks to the state of mind of a parent who's missing their child. They will try anything 
uh, to get information about their their kids' whereabouts. Right. The hopelessness of the situation, uh, the helpless feeling that they, I'm sure, feel. Yeah, you're right. You'd turn anywhere. Not sure how helpful psychics are going to be at that point, but I guess it can't hurt that much at that point. I don't know. Yeah, it can't hurt that much. And in addition to that, it wasn't like they were getting no attention from law enforcement. As we said, the FBI was involved, and now there's 11 FBI agents assigned to it. There's 32 Tacoma Police Department officers assigned to it. And on Monday the 25th, they go door-to-door in the area. They're interviewing potential witnesses. Teresa English takes a voluntary polygraph, their first one. And at that time, approximately 120 tips have come into the tip line. So we're talking two days later. Yeah, this is a massive search effort. And um, I think by this point, the, the news outlets have probably picked up this story. And that's why they're getting so many tips in about this case. And I also want to note that Teresa took two polygraphs. Both of them have not been publicly revealed. The results have not been publicly revealed. That's a lot of tips to have come in, and uh, at least they have a lot of officers and FBI agents working on it, so they could potentially even handle that amount of tips. Um, It's really hard, I would imagine, to handle that amount of tips. And on Tuesday, January 26th, 50 volunteers from KUBE-FM, which is a local radio station, searched a three-mile radius from the bowling alley. And search and rescue dragged a pond near the bowling alley, but not finding any clues. And then by Wednesday, which would be the 27th, uh, Teresa takes her second polygraph to address several questions that weren't considered in the first polygraph. As Lance mentioned, both of these uh, polygraphs have not been made public, the, the results of which. But law enforcement does not consider Teresa a suspect. And the first candlelight vigil is held on that Sunday uh a little over a week later at the bowling alley, approximately 500 tips at that time had been received. Yeah, and it was reported on February the 3rd that a psychic led police to an area just east of the Fort Lewis Army base. They searched the area but found nothing. This psychic was able to lead police to the body of a girl that was missing in 1996, so that's why the police kind of took this psychic up and, and followed their lead. But by the first week of February, 550 tips had come in and 300 people had been interviewed. Even with all of these tips and all of these interviews, police did not have a suspect. And Detective Fiardo stated, Tika vanished into thin air. Well, that's not true. And... um. I'd like to know more information about the psychic that led that led police to the body of a, a girl that was missing in 1996. And uh, to my knowledge, this would be one of the f- only documented uh, cases of something like that happening. So, yeah, I, I would like a little more info on that. That's interesting. I realized that the detective who made that comment, she vanished into thin air, probably didn't realize what the gravity of saying something like that is when that detective said it, but reading it just on paper and hearing it later on, someone verbalizing it, it really gives you the sense that hope has been lost when, when someone in law enforcement makes a comment that isn't based in reality. You know, she disappeared into thin air. Like you said, Tim, that didn't happen. No one disappears into thin air. It's a figure of speech. Probably didn't mean it. Definitely didn't mean it in, in that way, but should have been a little more selective when delivering quotes to the media. 
Yeah, you're right. And I, I really mean to be hard on the detective, um, you know, in saying that it's not true. And I think to your point, it's it's a great point, actually, that uh, law enforcement just doesn't say things like that unless this is something that they have no trace of. Yeah, it's a it's a very disheartening comment. Uh, I can't imagine being Tika's family and reading or listening to something like that. It's like, well, she didn't. Yeah. So that's a great Go point. Yeah, that, job. <laughs> no, you're right. I would be furious, um, to be honest. Yeah. As a human being, I mean, that kind of is probably his his or her experience uh, investigating the case. Definitely. So let's go through some of these tips. Um, not many of them were made known to the public, but one year after Tika went missing at the time of the first annual candlelight vigil, uh, it was revealed that one of the tips was from a 17-year-old that was at the bowling alley that night and saw two men standing near a girl around the time Tika disappeared. This teenager stated that it looked like they were following her. This teenager described them as uh, one man being between 30s and 40s, about 5'11", 200 pounds, with brown hair and a thick mustache and a pockmarked face and a big nose. That seems like a, a memorable person to me. Uh, the other guy was also between 30s and 40s, who was about 5'9", 200 pounds, with long black hair, dirty jeans, and a gray jacket with a sports logo. I'm not sure if uh, these two men have ever been tracked down um i'm sure police got a good handle on who who all was there at the bowling alley that night because i mean there were so many people i I suppose it'd be easy for these two men to slip out unnoticed especially before the alarm was raised but i do wonder if they were ever located yeah, the pockmarked face is um, an interesting characteristic. Um, I had to look that up, and it's sort of like, a, a whole, I guess, like craters in your face a little bit, maybe from chicken pox. Is that probably where the term comes from? Yeah, it's, yeah. typically it's from like a pox, like smallpox, chicken pox, but chicken pox is usually when you get the scars. Yeah, or like terrible acne, too, will lead to that. But it's really interesting that someone can pick up on that. It either speaks to the teenager's uh, really incredible um, wherewithal, like sense of where he is, and it really speaks to the teenager's presence, his wherewithal. Uh, Either the pockmarks were so bad that he noted them instantly, or he was close enough to see it, a combination of those two, and then remember it and, and... be able to make that description right down to like a large nose, a thick mustache. Like there's something about this person that stood out where he cataloged the details. I wonder how soon after Tika's disappearance that this uh, witness statement was, was taken. I mean, if it were, if it was the day after or even the night of, then I would definitely give this some credence. Like um, I imagine that I would notice too, like two men who uh, don't necessarily look like Tika, who are um, paying her attention or even following her, I would definitely uh, remember a scene like that. For sure. It sounds like a a pretty good tip. Um, And it sounds like it wasn't really made public that this was information until a year later. So you're right. This this tip could have come in at any point between Tika's disappearance and a year later. Um, So I would say the earlier, the better on that, obviously. 
And another tip revealed at that same time from a woman arriving at the bowling alley at about 10.15, which was the time that Tika disappeared. She noted that a 1980s to 90s maroon four-door Pontiac Grand Am with tinted windows and a spoiler on the back speeding out of the parking lot. Unfortunately, she was unable to get a license plate. Yeah, and we're not really sure why these tips took a year to be released and why no suspect sketches were ever completed. Um, As we'll see in a bit, this information was released to news media about a year later, but it was not mentioned again until 20 years later when a new detective assigned to the case in 2020 uh, brings it back into focus. I imagine that, I mean, law enforcement does this all the time, right? They hold back information to see if they can get another witness to corroborate it, if they also saw those two men, if they also saw that Pontiac Grand Am. But I imagine if if in a year they didn't hear any corroborating stories that they would deem it safe to release to the news. And the investigation continues, but unfortunately goes cold. The reward for information regarding the disappearance of Tika eventually grew to its current total of $27,000. The Tacoma Police Department and the FBI ran parallel investigations, one focusing on the family and one on strangers, which is, uh, again, reassuring to me that they were working hand in hand with the police department and saying, we'll work on this. You work on this. During this time, there were reports of sightings of individuals that looked like Tika. Unfortunately, none of them were her. She was highlighted on America's Most Wanted three separate times in 1999, January 30th. February 6th and September 4th, which, again, is very impressive to me. And on May 10th in 2001, it is reported that there was a body of a young African-American girl found in Kansas City. And Teresa didn't feel like it was Tika, and about two months later, DNA ruled Tika out of being that Jane Doe, and uh, the body was referred to as Precious Doe. Precious Doe is eventually identified several years later as Erica Michelle Marie Green, a three-year-old child, and her mother and stepfather were later convicted of her murder. Oh, God, that's horrible. Um, yeah, it's it's important to mention here because like, sometimes you would see in various articles or whatever that a doe had been found in Kansas City and might be linked to her case, but we know that's not the case now. And then in the early 2000s, the property next to the bowling alley was developed. Um, as we mentioned before, it became a, a Home Depot and a jack-in-the-box. But the Tacoma police believed that Tika's body would be found um, as this um, area was excavated. But that property, as well as the property that the bowling alley was on, uh, was excavated and developed, and, and nothing of evidentiary value was found. Does anyone Sounds else like find lazy it... lazy theory to me. Yeah, does it, <laughs> anyone else find it's it like... strange that the police would believe that the body would be found? right there like someone abducted her and then buried her right there yeah like unless this was an employee who like buried her in the basement or something like that what are you what are you talking about this sounds like a pick up the couch cushions uh kind of thing and see if you find you know quarter car keys like this. yeah this is ridiculous yeah yeah agreed i mean unless i could foresee perhaps a situation in which tika wandered out on her own and maybe was hit by a car on the road or in the parking lot and i don't know it doesn't seem like it, it seems like there was such an extensive search of the property where the bowling alley was on that they would have found something if there was anything to find. But as we know, nothing was found. Right. And and 
this was in the early 2000s, so a couple of years later. You don't just, when you're when you're redeveloping land, you don't just like stick a shovel in the ground and start going. Like you have people out there surveying the land and, and marking off areas that they're digging. You, come on. Like you, if something was going to be found, it would have been found during the searches or during the exploration as they're getting ready to redevelop that land. Yeah, I guess that is another one that kind of speaks to the hopelessness of the case. And sure. uh, the police were sort of left with no answers there if they're, um, you know, expecting her to be there at that point. And verbalizing that, you know, whether they're verbalizing that to friends, family, or the media, they're still having those thoughts strong enough where they verbalize it. And then in April of 2006, it is reported that a private investigator was hired by Tika's family, and they found a girl in Texas that may have been Tika. And Teresa sees a picture of the girl and believes that it is Tika, which you can imagine would be a pretty emotional moment. And um, the woman that was with the girl in the photo looks like someone that was at the bowling alley. And uh, further investigation, though, reveals that the birthmarks do not match Tika. And DNA finally proved that this um, girl was not Tika. So... That's enough time, I think, to pass where a parent who's desperate to find their child might see similarities in a a very similar looking child who is now seven years older and, and not seeing past the realities of, you know, the situation, even seeing someone in the picture and saying that looks a lot like a person that was at the bowling alley that night you know like people are very similar looking especially years later yeah and i think um grief definitely plays a part in this too grief can make you believe things that you otherwise wouldn't in a more reasonable state of mind but i imagine for so long like i imagine going so long without any answers you're kind of willing to stretch your imagination in any direction that would provide you answers for sure yeah we back to that um donna green interview that we had about missing raymond green um she had an experience very much like that she thought there was a boy that was raymond green turned out to not be him um and i would bet that in every case of a missing kid that there's a moment like this for the parent And Teresa still maintains that, at least in uh, 2009, she stated that she believes Tika is alive and with one of her ex-boyfriends, one of Teresa's ex-boyfriends, and living with him in Florida. And it's a really interesting reason why she would believe this. Apparently, the man's mother, the ex-boyfriend's mother, had asked Teresa if she could have Tika before Tika disappeared. So she proposed that she takes Tika because she wanted to have a girl. And she didn't have a girl, a daughter. Um, as a parent, again, is this a red flag? I mean, yeah. I mean, unless there's like some scenario, I know they had a lot of kids, unless there's some scenario where you're not able to care for your children, you know, yeah, absolutely. This is a huge red flag. And thankfully, Teresa told her no, said, quote, no way, she's my daughter. And she hasn't heard from the ex-boyfriend since March of 1999. And it's not like this ex-boyfriend is Tika's father either. Like, can I just have your child? What kind of question is that? Well, that's a great <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah, this isn't an ex-boyfriend that is the father. This is an ex-boyfriend that was acquainted to Tika. Yeah, and Teresa stated that she hadn't heard from this guy since March of 1999. Detectives stated that they did have a person of interest in 2009 in Florida and went there to speak to him. 
Um, he was given two polygraphs, according to Teresa. He passed one and failed the other. It is not currently known if the police consider him a suspect at this time. But they traveled all the way to Florida from Washington State to interview him uh, twice or at least yeah. once. He was given two polygraphs, apparently. So that's that's pretty compelling. And I assume this is the same person, um, Teresa's ex-boyfriend and the person they interviewed. Yeah, we don't we don't have like a clear confirmation from law enforcement that, that it's the same person. But like, who else would it be in Florida? It's really interesting. Do they ask the same questions on a polygraph if you pass it and then fail it? And is it known whether he failed it and then they gave it to him again and he passed it? Or did he pass and there was something about his behavior or something that made them give it to him again? Or do we don't really know the order of the two, do we? I mean, I think if he passed with flying colors, he probably wouldn't have been given a second one. Yeah. Um, and I would bet that there are some repeat questions just to establish a baseline. Yeah, so I guess what it would probably be just using common sense is that he failed it or maybe something's lost in translation. Maybe it was inconclusive, so they gave him a second one. Or maybe he failed it and he asked for a second one and passed it. It's just interesting. I, I think I'm hung up on this because we don't see it very often where someone has two polygraphs and one's failed and one's passed. It's usually one's inconclusive and then one passed or they're both inconclusive or one failed, you know? Right. I believe that's the case with Butch Atwood, though. Yeah. The, uh, the bus driver who uh, was the last person to see Maura Murray, um, he passed one and failed another, apparently. Or it was at least inconclusive. I, I think failed and inconclusive are kind of the same thing when you're talking polygraphs. Yeah, potentially. I mean, there, there are so many factors that go into polygraphing someone. I mean, if they're... I mean, especially if you did fail one and you are innocent, like you would probably be quite emotional and quite anxious the the second time you might pass one. Yeah, I don't know if the you know police can really use the word failed, you know, publicly at least because it just implies guilt, you know. So I think inconclusive they would tell the media or something like that. Um but internally they could definitely say, you know, this is guilty, this is suspicious as hell. Yeah, I think of anything um, polygraphs should not be viewed as a science. I know we've said this a million times, but they should be used as a psychological tool with a suspect. On January 29th, 2010, it was reported that a man that attended that year's vigil approached Tika's family and told them that he had visions that Tika was buried in a garden at Point Defiance Park. And Teresa notified the police who dug up the garden, which is, you know, I mean, I can't even believe it. amazing. Followed. Yeah, um, but they did not find anything. That's amazing. Isn't this amazing to you that she went to the police and said a man had a vision and then they go into what I guess is a city-owned park and dig up a garden? Yeah, I think that's sort of what we were talking about before. Um, it's almost like akin to a confession if they were, you know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. they searched it because they thought this was maybe a suspect, not because yeah. they because they thought this guy was a great psychic and Tika's really there. Amazing, though, that they even took it to that point instead of writing it yeah. off. You know, a suspect or somebody told this guy something and, that, you know, who knows why he did it. But it, um, I'm still just really... I mean, we're talking 11 years later. Right. And do you think they brought cadaver dogs to the park first and they got a hit or something? Because it seems like just going right to digging based on a, a psychic uh, tip is um, a bit extreme. So I would think they would bring dogs out first. Yeah. 
I would imagine. I mean, they brought dogs out hours after the disappearance itself. No, I think I think it's quite amazing that they um, dug up Point Defiance Park um, just on the basis of this guy's vision. And as we continue through this case, there are several other tips that the police took seriously. Um, I think uh, we're going to end here and and come back in for part two as we dive deeper into Tika Lewis's disappearance. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.